All right, church, go and grab your Bibles, if you would, and open up with me to the 35th Psalm. Um, if you haven't been here with us, if you're visiting, uh, what we've done over the last couple of years is, is we normally go verse by verse through books of the Bible. That's the way we approach things in our services. Um, and in between our longer book studies, we have, we have turned our attention to the Psalms. And so we have been uh, going through the Psalms in seven or eight Psalms at a time. And so we just finished a study in Colossians a few weeks ago. And so uh, we're right now going through about eight or nine of the Psalms. And so this morning we're going to be in Psalm 35. And uh, you, re- you might remember, um, I've mentioned a few times in the past, that the Puritans referred to the Psalms as a medicine chest for the soul. And that is still my favorite description of what the Psalms are. It's like uh, whatever condition you're in spiritually, whatever might be ailing you spiritually, you can open up the medicine chest of the Psalms and you can find a psalm that will be the perfect medicine for your soul. So there are psalms for times of rejoicing, and there are psalms for times of suffering. There are psalms for times of thanksgiving, and there are psalms for times of betrayal. And it's appropriate that David is the man who God used to write about half of the psalms, because David experienced just about everything in his life that you can imagine. David went through the highest of highs. He went from the the sheep pen to the palace. David went from being a a lowly shepherd boy to the great king of Israel. So he had the highest of the highs. He, He knew God's blessings and God's provision in a remarkable way. But David also experienced the lowest of the lows. You would have a hard time finding yourself in a condition that was any lower, any more beat down than David's was at times. There were years that David spent running for his life from King Saul. David experienced children rebel against him. Friends betrayed him. David had a baby die. He went through the lowest of the lows. So so David experienced just about everything you can imagine, and that's what the Psalms deal with. So the Psalms don't give us some idealized picture of worship. The Psalms show us what it looks like to praise God, and what it looks like to pray to God through all of the highs and all of the lows of life. And the psalm we're going to be looking at this morning, Psalm 35, is definitely one of those psalms that was written during one of those low times. Now you could could categorize this psalm in a couple of different ways. Broadly speaking, this could be called a psalm of lament, where David is just pouring out his burden and his agony to God. More specifically, it's a psalm of vindication, where David is asking God to intervene and vindicate him. But even more specifically, this could be labeled as an imprecatory psalm. Have you heard that word before, an imprecatory psalm? Imprecatory psalms are psalms where in prayer to God, the the prayer, the psalmist, is calling for God to intervene and to judge the enemies of God's people. It's a call for God to intervene and judge his enemies. And there are about a dozen psalms like this in the Psalter. Now just so you get a feel for what I mean by an imprecatory psalm, if you're opened up to Psalm 35, I'll just read a few verses with you just so you can see what I'm talking about. Look at verse 4, Psalm 35 verse 4. Notice this prayer for judgment against his enemies. He says, Let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek after my life. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. Look at verse 6. 
Let their way be dark and slippery. And let the angel of the Lord pursue them. Verse 8. Let destruction come upon him unexpectedly. And let his net that he has hidden catch himself into that very destruction. Let him fall. That's an imprecatory prayer. And to be honest, a lot of people aren't sure what to do with psalms like this. Some Christians are even a little bit embarrassed by them. How can a believer pray this way? But, but God put psalms like this here for a reason. Remember, the psalms are a medicine chest for the soul. They're showing us how to pray to God during all of the different circumstances of life. Well, one of the circumstances you might find yourself in in a fallen world is you might find yourself going through a time of terrible injustice. You, you might find yourself facing a period of horrible persecution, of overwhelming evil and wickedness. So I'll give you an example. When, um, when our church was, was doing mission work in Nigeria, this is probably, I don't know, 10 years or so ago now, but the, the city that we were sort of headquartered out of was Joss. And then we would go from Joss out into the bush to do ministry. Well, we ended up partnering with a, a church there in Joss. There was a solid Christian church in Joss that we started working with. We did some pastor training out in the bush with them. Well, the way Nigeria is broken down is the, the northern part of Nigeria is almost entirely Muslim. And then the southern part of Nigeria is largely Christian. Well, Joss sits right on the line between the north and the south. And so what will happen is there will occasionally be these flare-ups where Muslims will go on a rampage against Christians. And a few years before we were there, one of those rampages had happened. Muslims had gone into the marketplace there in Joss. There had been this sort of coordinated attack. Boko Haram was kind of behind all of the things that were going on. And they had slaughtered Christians in Joss. Dozens of them had hundreds, I think, had been killed. Well, in talking with this pastor who had a church there, he said that during, while all this was happening, he was getting calls on his cell phone. And the caller ID would show that it was a call from one of his church members. But when he would open the phone to answer it, he wouldn't recognize the voice on the other end of the line. And it would actually be one of the killers. And what they would do is when they would kill Christians, they would get their phones and they would scroll through. And if they could find the word pastor on their phone, they would call the pastor of the person they were killing to let him know that they were about to kill his church members, just to mock him, to taunt him as they were killing his church members. They were trying to send Christians running, to eradicate Christianity. Another, another man we did some work with there, his name was Emmanuel, and he was trying to work in the bush areas with pastors and, and with churches that were spread out. And one of his teenage daughters, mid-teen daughters, had been kidnapped by the Muslims and forcibly married off to a Muslim man. And he, he went years and years before he ever saw his daughter. So how are you supposed to pray in light of that sort of evil? How are you supposed to pray in light of those kinds of movements that are horrible assaults on the people of God, terrible injustices, attempts to smear the name of God? Well, the imprecatory Psalms give us one such avenue of prayer. Now, we, we have to be careful with this because the imprecatory psalms are not about 
personal vengeance. They're not about vindictiveness. We have to, we have to hold this in balance with Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. I'll read you just part of that. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 verses 43 and 44. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So God calls us not to pray against our personal enemies, but to pray for our personal enemies. So my point is the imprecatory Psalms aren't for every personal wrong, like your boss doesn't give you a raise at work and you think you deserve it, so you start praying down fire from heaven on your boss. But there are times when the injustices against God's people are so great, the persecution is so mighty, God's truth is so under attack, God's name is so greatly smeared that it is appropriate for God's people to cry out for God to intervene, to cry out for God to stop the evil and stop the injustice. And that's what the imprecatory psalms are about. In fact, you realize we're praying that every time we call for Jesus to return. That that's the prayer the Bible ends with, right? The last prayer in Revelation is, come Lord Jesus. And we pray that, come Lord. Well, what will Jesus' coming entail? We pray for him to come. What will that look like? Well, Jesus' coming will mean rescue for those who are trusting in Jesus. And it will mean judgment for those who fight against Jesus. Even when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. What, what will his kingdom coming mean? It means, it will mean that the enemies of his kingdom will be stopped. That's what it will mean. Now, we know that God can stop his enemies in a couple different ways. God can stop his enemies on the one hand, by just sweeping them away in judgment. But God can stop his enemies on the other hand by changing his enemies, right? God can sweep them away in judgment, or God can take an enemy, transform their heart, and turn them into a son or a daughter. Think of the Apostle Paul, for instance. There was a time in Paul's life when Paul was the greatest enemy of the Christian church, playing a, a pivotal role in the martyrdom of Stephen. And can you imagine those early Christians praying against Paul? God, stop that man. Bring him to an end. And that's exactly what God did on the road to Damascus, isn't it? He brought that Paul to an end. The Paul who hated Jesus and was attacking the Christian church, that Paul ceased to exist that day. And God created a new Paul who loved the Lord and became one of the most prolific church planters in human history. So God can bring his enemies to an end in different ways. And all that's encompassed in these imprecatory prayers. Let me read a quote from John Tweedale and then we'll jump into this imprecatory prayer where he's describing how these imprecatory psalms work. John Tweedale writes, To pray the imprecatory psalms is ultimately to pray as Jesus taught us to pray. As Christians, we long for God's kingdom to come. We yearn for His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Praying the imprecatory psalms is not a call to arms, but a call to faith. We lift our voices, not our swords, as we pray for God either to convert or curse the enemies of Christ and His kingdom. So. That's what the imprecatory psalms of the Bible are. Now, with all that said, 
That's what Psalm 35 is. So we're going to dive into this psalm. And it's a long one, so we're going to move fast this morning. And there are three clear sections to Psalm 35. Okay, Each section, David describes what he's facing. He pleads for God to help. And then each one of these sections ends with David promising to praise God for his deliverance. So you'll notice each section of this imprecatory psalm ends with David promising to praise God. Alright, so here's the first section. Number one, I want to see the urgency of the situation. Let's just read the first three verses. We'll read through this a little bit at a time. Psalm 35, verses 1 through 3, David says, Plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive against me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and stand up for my help. Also draw out the spear and stop those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. It's not hard to figure out the mood of this psalm, is it? You get the hint right away that David is praying this with a sense of desperation. Verse 1 has uh, courtroom connotations to it. When David says, plead my cause, it's the idea of God, plead my case. God, step in as my defense attorney. That's what he's asking for in verse 1. David is picturing it as if he is standing before the judge and the prosecutor's box is full. There are lots and lots of people who are eager to hurl accusations at David, but David feels like he is standing all alone in the defendant's box. Like no one is with him and he is praying that God would stand on his side. He's asking God to rise to his defense. And then beginning in verse 2, David switches to military language. And he asks God to pick up his armor and to grab his weapon and to come fight. David says, take your, your uh, shield. That, that first word for shield is the word for a small shield that they would carry. But then he uses the word buckler. Buckler was the big full body sized rectangular shaped shields. And so David is asking God to defend him, to protect him, but not just protect. Because David also prays that God would take up his spear. That's a, an offensive weapon. David is asking God to strike a blow against his enemies. Now make sure you get, make sure you get how David thinks of God. David does not think of God as some weak, marshmallowy deity who's just there to pat us on the head and hand out candy when we're good. No. David pictures God as, as a warrior who fights for his people. This is a God who steps into the fray. This is a God who walks out onto the battlefield on behalf of his people. He fights for his people. There's a story about uh, Abraham Lincoln. One of the one of the biggest challenges that Abraham Lincoln faced in the early days of the Civil War was finding a general who would fight, who would be aggressive, even though the, the Union had the, the Confederacy severely outnumbered in terms of soldiers, the, the generals that Lincoln kept appointing were more content to kind of sit back and watch. They were timid, they were tentative. And so Lincoln cycled through a number of generals until he finally landed on Ulysses S. Grant. And Grant turned out to be exactly the sort of general that he was looking for. He was aggressive. He tried to take the fight to the south. But there were a lot of people around Lincoln who, who didn't think he should let Grant stay in that position because Grant didn't have the best reputation. 
He had left military life for quite a while before the war. He had a reputation of being a heavy drinker, of having a drinking problem. And so Lincoln had his advisors coming to him saying he needed to remove Grant, remove him as being general. And finally, in one of these conversations, Lincoln famously said, I can't spare that man. He fights. And his point was, he didn't just need a general with a good pedigree. He didn't need a general who could write a great book on military strategy. He needed a general who would fight. Well, that's what David is saying God's people have in God. This is a God who fights for his people. This is God who steps out onto the battlefield on behalf of those who belong to him. And I like what David says in verse 3. He says, say to my soul, I am your salvation. Do you see what David is asking of God there? David is asking God to reassure him. He is saying, God, say to me, remind me, you're my salvation. He needs reassurance. This is like, it's like Paul saying in Galatians that, that God gives us his spirit. And what's one of the reasons why God gives us his Holy Spirit? He says that his spirit testifies to our spirit. That God is our Abba Father. In other words, one of the reasons he gives us his spirit is for reassurance. The spirit reminds us, the spirit reminds us that God is our Father. And the spirit reminds us that we are God's children. That's what David's praying for here. He needs assurance from God. Reminder that God will be his salvation. Pick up in verse 4. We'll read down through verse 8. David says... Let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek after my life. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. Let them be like chaff before the wind and let the angel of the Lord chase them. Let their way be dark and slippery. Verse 7, I'm sorry. For without cause they have hidden their net for me in a pit which they've dug without cause for my life. Let destruction come upon him unexpectedly. And let his, let his net that he has hidden catch himself into that very destruction. Let him fall. What do we learn about David's enemies there? Well, David says they're seeking his life. David says they're plotting his hurt. And then notice that in verse 7, David says they're doing this without cause. That means that David doesn't understand what he's done to bring on this kind of treatment. Now, we can, we can speculate. It could be they just hated David because of his position. If you haven't experienced this in life, there will be people who are just so eaten up with envy and jealousy that they'll hate you just because of where you are. If you're in a position of authority at, at work, if you're above them on the ladder at your job, um, if you have a bigger house or a nicer car, anything will will instigate this sort of jealousy. It could be that. David's the king and they're not. could be David's commitment to righteousness that they hate him for. But whatever it is, they want to see David humiliated. So David is asking God to help. They're, they're trying to shame David. And so David is asking that all this will be turned on their heads. He's saying, God, let them be ashamed. They're setting traps to catch David. And so David is saying, Lord, let them be caught in their own traps. And then you'll notice David uses the word chaff. Let them be like cha chaff. You remember what chaff is? Chaff was the, the shell around grain. When they would have a grain harvest and they would bring all the grain in, 
there's this light hole or husk over the grain and they would bring animals in to crush the grain to break the husk then they would they would throw it up in the air and the the heavier grain would fall down but the wind would pick up that light chaff and carry it away and that's what David's praying for let them be driven away like chaff and let the angel of the Lord get that phrase let the angel of the Lord chase them remember the angel of the Lord is how God appeared in the Old Testament to help his people the angel of the Lord is how God would make his presence known with his people the same phrase was used in Psalm 34 in fact look back at Psalm 34 Verse 7, where David says, The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. So, so the angel of the Lord camps around God's people to protect and provide. But now David's saying the opposite will work for God's enemies. The angel of the Lord will pursue the enemies of God's people in battle. Now we, we've been working through Second Kings on Sunday nights. We're not quite there yet, but in just a few weeks we'll be in 2 Kings 19 where the Assyrians finally will make their way into the southern kingdom and they'll start attacking the city of Jerusalem. And you remember what God does miraculously to stop Assyria? He sends the angel of the Lord, this theophany, this appearance of God to slay almost 200,000 Assyrian soldiers. The, the angel of the Lord is God's might, God's presence to protect his people, God's presence to defend his people against their enemies. And David says, as they run, let their way be slippery and let it be in darkness. So he's saying, let them stumble and fall even as they're being pursued. Then verses 9 and 10, here comes that little praise part of each stanza. And my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation. All my bones shall say, Lord, who is like you? Delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him. Yes, the poor and the needy from him who plunders him. I mentioned each one of these three parts ends with this promise to praise the Lord. And here David says, all my bones will praise you. That's a way of saying everything that I am, every inch of my being is going to praise you. And David uses that rhetorical question, Lord, who is like you? And of course, that's a rhetorical question that calls for a no one answer. Who is like Yahweh? All the nations around Israel worshipped idols. They worshipped make-believe gods. There is no God like Yahweh, David is saying, we're going to worship you because you are the only true God. There, there's an interesting story. Uh, Sudan, Sudan Interior Mission is a ministry organization that does work in Africa. And several years ago, there was a story that came through them about uh, a husband and wife who had been converted from Islam and had come to faith in Christ in West Africa. And the story goes that the wife actually came to trust in Jesus before her husband which in the Muslim world, that's no small thing. For a wife to leave the religion of her husband and trust in Christ, her husband was irate, he beat her mercilessly, but she persevered in her faith. Well, a number of months later, they were having a conference for Christian women in that area in a nearby village, and so she told her husband she was going to go for a few days to that conference. Again, he was irate, he beat her. Well, when the morning of the conference came, 
She left to go to the conference and her husband followed her out on the porch just berating her the whole way as she left. After she was gone, he made a big show and called all the neighbors out and announced to all the neighbors that that woman would never be allowed in his home again. They had a key. She had a key to the house that she had left on the front porch so she could get in later. And he took her key to the house. Their house ran next to a little river and he threw her key in the river. And then he marched off to spend the rest of the week with his mistress. Well, when, when the conference came to an end and she was on her way back home, she didn't know that any of this had happened. But she decided that she was going to make a nice meal for her husband that night. So on her way home, she stopped by the market and got some different vegetables and fish and all sorts of things to cook. And she came back to the house. And to her surprise, she was locked out. She couldn't get into the house. So she, she borrowed a pot from one of her neighbors and began to prepare the food for the meal that night. And as she was preparing the fish, cleaning the fish, she cut into one of them and felt something hard inside. And she cut into the, the entrails and a key fell out of the fish. And it looked, she looked at it and it looked familiar to her. And she grabbed it and turned around and sure enough, it fit in her door and unlocked the door of her house. And so she went in and finished cooking the meal. When her husband came home hours later, he was irate. He couldn't, couldn't understand how she got in. He came in and demanded to know how she had broken into their house. And when she came over and began to tell him the story, he just sat there in silence. And then that Sunday, she asked, her husband asked if he could go to her church service with her. And after the service, he called their pastor over and told their pastor that he wanted to start worshiping their God, because he knew there was no God who could do the things that he had done. Well, that's what David is saying here. There is no God like Yahweh. So David is saying, our prayers, our praise will be unequaled because we're praising a God who has no equals. Well, here's the, the second part, the second stanza. I've labeled the ruthlessness of the enemy. Pick up in verse 11. We'll read down through verse 16. David says, Fierce witnesses rise up. They ask me things that I do not know. They reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting, and my prayer would return to my own heart. I paced about as though he were my friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one who mourns for his mother. But in my adversity, they rejoiced and gathered together. Attackers gathered against me, and I did not know it. They tore at me and did not cease. With ungodly mockers at feast, they gnashed at me with their teeth. David says in verse 11, they ask me things I do not know. It's like they're accusing David of things he, he knows nothing about. They're hurling accusations. He's never even heard of the things that they're accusing him of. And then David compares their treatment of him with his treatment of them. When they were sick, when they were in distress, David had actually put on mourning garments David had fasted and David had prayed. He had asked God to intervene and rescue. He had, he had treated them like they were his own family members. When they were down, David got down with them. But now that the shoe's on the other foot, now that David's the one down, 
that they're not getting down to pray. They're kicking David while he's down. David says they're gnashing at me with their teeth. He's, he's presenting them like they're wild animals. If you've ever watched those nature documentaries, you know, one of the most gruesome scenes they'll show on those documentaries is when a, a pride of lions or a pack of hyenas takes down some animal and they begin to rip it apart before the animal is even dead. That's what David is saying he feels like. He feels like he is being torn to shreds by his enemies. And to make it worse, they're rejoicing as they do it. David is looking at them and they're smirking as David cries. In his anguish, they're laughing about David's misery. They're mocking David in his agony. They're not praying for him like he did for them. They're partying. They love to see David suffer. Look at how he says it in verse 17. David says, Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue me from their destructions. My precious life from the lions. This is what made it even harder for David. He can't understand why God is taking so long. It feels like he's being ripped apart by his enemies. He's being torn to shreds. And it's like God's just watching it happen. Now, David knows God can rescue him. But he doesn't understand why God's not rescuing him. Why isn't God stepping in? Did you notice that language in the psalm we opened with today? Go back to Psalm 13 again. Charles Spurgeon called Psalm 13 the, the howling psalm because it opens with David repeating that word howl, like he's howling over and over. Listen to the opening words of Psalm 13 again. Four howls. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Do you hear that repetition? How long, how long, how long, how long, how long? I mean, this is one of the things that, that can make suffering even worse is when there's no end in sight to it. They, they say time flies when you're having fun, but the opposite's true when you're suffering. It can feel like time just drags on endlessly. Where is God? Has God forgotten me? And Christian, if that's where you are, let me just assure you, he hasn't. One of my favorite passages about this issue is um, Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49 is where Israel is in one of these positions Where's God? Surely God could not be with them still, suffering as much as they were. And listen to God's response. This is Isaiah 49, picking up in verse 14. But Zion, this is Israel crying out to God. Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. This is God's response, verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Moms, think of how committed you are to your children. Is, is there ever a time where your kids are out of your mind? Or, or I'll say it this way. Is there any chance you could get up tomorrow morning, go to work, go to the grocery store, whatever you're doing in the morning, and in the process... Just forget that you had kids. 
Go to work and just never think about your kids again. No, that would never happen. That is impossible. Well, God is saying there is a greater likelihood of you forgetting your children than there is of him forgetting his children. God says that he has the names of his children engraved on his hands. He never forgets. He never turns away. God's care for his children is like the sun. It is always there. Now, there are days like today when it's cloudy and you can't see the sun, but it's still there. That's what God is saying. You have not been forgotten, Christian. You have not been forsaken. And i got to say, i got to say, the only reason what you cling to, what assures you you have not been forsaken, is you know Jesus was forsaken in your place. No, no doubt about it. Listen, we should be forsaken. That's what we deserve because we all in our sin have turned our backs on God. That's what sin is. Sin is us saying, God, you're not going to tell me what to do. I'll do it my own way. We forsake God in our sin. And what should happen is God should forsake us in response. We deserve to be forsaken by God. And the only reason and the only way we're not is because Jesus was forsaken in our place. This is Jesus hanging on the cross, and what does he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus on the cross is forsaken by the Father in our place. He's treated, he's treated as if he is the sinner. So that now everyone who looks to him, everyone who trusts in him, we're promised will never be forsaken. God will never turn away from you. You will not and you have not been forgotten by God. So that's what David clings to. Look at the last verse of this section, verse 18. David says, here's that call to worship, call to praise again. He says, I will give you thanks in the great assembly. I will praise you among many people. David again pledges he's going to praise the Lord. And he's not, going to, he's not just going to praise the Lord alone in his prayer closet. David says he's going to praise the Lord in the great assembly. This is talking about corporate worship. He's going to praise the Lord with the people of the Lord. Remember us saying last week that that is the apex of our praise. Yes, yes, we're called to praise the Lord all alone. But the pinnacle of our worship is when we praise the Lord with his people. That's what David is committing to here. And then this leads to the final section. And I labeled this the plea for vindication. The plea for vindication. We'll pick up in verse 19. David says, Let them not rejoice over me who are wrongfully my enemies. Nor let them wink with the eye who hate me without a cause. For they do not speak peace, but they devise deceitful matters against the quiet ones in the land. They also opened their mouth wide against me and said, Aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. Verse 22. This you have seen, O Lord. Do not keep silent. O Lord, do not be Far from me. Do you get the contrast? David's describing his enemies winking at each other. 
They've devised their plans. They're giving each other sideways glances. They make their accusations. You can imagine them pointing their fingers at David. Aha! We caught you. We saw what you did. And in response, David says, Lord, you have seen. Lord, everybody else might believe the lie, but Lord, you know the truth. Verse 23. Stir up yourself and take Excuse me, and awake to my vindication, to my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, ah, so we would have it. Let them not say, we have swallowed him up. Verse 26. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who rejoice at my hurt. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who exalt themselves against me. Do you feel the intensity of the psalm building here in these voices as David is saying, Lord, rise up. Lord, awake. Lord, come to my defense and rescue. And then it ends as all of these verses, as all of these stanzas have ended, verses 27 and 28. Let them shout for joy and be glad who favor my righteous cause. And let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. And my tongue shall speak of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. It ends with another call to worship. It might seem like evil has the upper hand, but David knows it is not going to stay that way. This is the psalmist saying elsewhere that, that sorrow may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Or this is, this is Paul in Romans 8 saying, the sufferings of this present life aren't worthy to be compared to the glory which will be revealed in us. It's not going to be this way forever. That's what David is saying in these verses. Injustice has an expiration date. Evil has an expiration date. Persecution has an expiration date. Wickedness has an expiration date. He knows God, in the end, will prevail. And in light of that, David says, we're going to rejoice in your name, and I'm going to sing your praises all the day long. Let me read one last verse with you that will sort of tie up this whole thought in the imprecatory psalm. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 12. Romans 12, verse 19. It's where Paul says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now get what Paul says. Paul says, don't avenge yourself, but give place to wrath. That, that give place means give room for. Don't avenge yourself, but give room for wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath. Vengeance is mine says the Lord. The Bible doesn't say vengeance is wrong. The Bible says vengeance is God's. Vengeance is entirely God's prerogative. And he will appropriately get it. He always does. Sometimes God gets appropriate justice and vengeance in this life for the sake of his name and his people. How, how might he do it in this life? Well, this is Romans 12 we're reading. Romans 13 is where Paul talks about why God establishes civil government. 
That God establishes government to bear the sword and to punish evildoers. So sometimes God works the sword of government against evildoers or through court systems to bring about justice. But, but we know, we know that that can be a mixed bag. Sometimes courts get justice, sometimes courts don't get justice. But Paul's assuring us here that one way or another, God will always get justice. He may handle it in this life, but he will most definitely handle it in the life to come. And these, these imprecatory psalms encourage us to entrust that to God. We are not called to be personal vigilantes, where every time there's any sort of personal offense, we got to make sure everybody gets paid back with their pound of flesh. No, we cry out to God and we leave it to God. And the only way, this is important, we're going to close. The, listen, the only way you and I will be able to do that is if we really believe that God is just and if we really believe that in the end God will have perfect vengeance. If you don't trust God, you will be tempted to play God. I'm going to say that again. If you don't trust God, you'll be tempted to play God. And what I mean is, if you don't trust that God is perfectly just, and in the end, he's going to settle all accounts, if you don't trust that, then you'll feel like you need to step into God's shoes. And you need to make sure everyone who's done any sort of offense against you, anybody who's wronged you, gets their comeuppance. But that, that will ruin your soul, and that will dishonor the Lord. So put your trust in the God who always judges righteously. Pour your heart out to him. Pray like David. Pray and ask God to rise to your defense. And then trust that he will. Trust that he will. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. I'm going to give you some time to go to the Lord in your seat. It's interesting with these Psalms since they're written into all sorts of different emotional and life situations. Um, I don't know who might be in a situation where you need this sort of prayer this morning. You're, you're looking at things going on in our world. And there are times when this sort of prayer is an appropriate avenue for God to stop, for God to rise up, for God to defend. And, and maybe the overarching call to you this morning is to trust God. Man, your, your soul is being eaten up because you feel like you've been mistreated and bitterness is growing, anger is growing. You're hungering for personal vengeance. And take this psalm as a call from God to you this morning to let that go. That belongs to the Lord. Entrust it to the Lord. Leave it in the hands of the Lord. And let David's words be an assurance to you. Listen, believer, you have not been forsaken. God, you, there's a better likelihood of you forsaking your children than of God forsaking his. He will not turn away. He has not forgotten you. Hold to that. Trust the Lord. The cross is the ultimate proof that you will never be forsaken. God is so determined to keep you, to hold you, to not forsake you, that he forsook his son in your place. So look to the cross. Hold to God's mercy.